but design research is a real important field. <laughs> and there are, there are methodologies and tools like you have to know, set all your assumptions aside, go talk to people and figure out what it is they're trying to accomplish and why. And that will inform a better design. If you just, and it de-risks the process, it saves tons of money. Welcome to the What is UX podcast, the show where we interview design leaders about their journey and experience so that you may learn from them. I'm your host, Peck Pompat. On this episode, we have Jesse Gaskin. He's the Human Center Design and Patient Experience Lead at Kaiser Permanente Northern California. And he is the design leader of 13 years plus experience in human center design serves as a co-program director for the Design Leaders Council of the Conference Board. He's worked with startups and Fortune 500 companies, primarily in healthcare and financial services. He holds an MBA from the Stewart School of Business and a Master of Design at the Institute of Design at the Illinois Institute of Technology, as well as a BFA in graphic design from San Jose State. Welcome to the show, Jesse. Hey, Peck. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you bringing me on. I appreciate uh, you coming on. And as always, we'd love to learn more about maybe if you could describe in your own words uh, what you do at Kaiser Permanente, what does the work look like? And yeah, let's start there. Sure. Happy to share that. Yeah. So I sit in the Northern California region within the Transformation and Strategic Initiative team. So we have a pretty broad purview of projects, basically anything that needs to be uh, looked at from a strategy perspective, um, doing innovative thinking. So that's very high level. But to get down to like the tactical pieces, there's a few key projects I'm working on. One is around how do we measure and or how do we better measure and make actionable patient experience insights? So how do we know how our members are doing? What do we do with that information? And how do we inspire and motivate our physicians, uh, nurses, MAs and staff? To, to improve that experience. So that's a, a big one. And then another one I'm looking at is um, about how do we reimagine care broadly? So this is taking from a few different uh, fields, one of innovation strategy, one of like human-centered design, design thinking, and then operations to, to really understand where are the opportunities in the organization to make change? And then how do you translate those into projects that we can work on with frontline staff and physicians to, to, to create change. So that's now has 34 projects within it and we're wow. using design sprints to, to move through that portfolio. So it's really exciting work. Awesome. Thank you for that. You know, I think when designers just starting out, right, you're, you're just trying to solve very tactical problems and, and thinking about screens. Uh, you mentioned that you have to, in this role, it sounds like there's a lot of strategic work. How do, how do designers start to think more strategically? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I'm just reflecting back to earlier in my career, I was working at Deborley Design Office and I started out as an intern just kind of making screens. And I think curiosity is what helped me make that bridge to strategy. So we were doing projects around diabetes. And so I very one of my very first projects was just mapping the interface for common diabetes meters or glucometers, and then starting to design how might these be better? And then in order to answer that question, how would these be better? You have to know what they're trying to accomplish. So you need to learn a little bit about diabetes and then a little bit about what the user is going through 
and why, what is the, the behavior change that they need to make and how do they, what motivates them? Because that informs the design. If you just look at the screen without all of that context, you may create something that looks great, but may not have the change that the organization or your client is really looking for. So at the end of the day, they're not, you're not trying to just monitor your blood glucose. What you're trying to do is maintain a healthy life. So my projects started very tactical like that and then expanded over time to, okay, and how do we, what other things do you need besides a glucometer? So a way to track your food, because that's a really um, hard part of diabetes is learning to eat differently. And then well, what motivates people to eat differently? And it gets into behavioral design and that, that always asking why kind of led me up and up the abstraction scale. At times, I think I went too far and had to <laughs> come back down because uh, it was just all theory at, at one point in my, in my career. Right. Asking the five whys is a, is a great framework to become more of a strategic thinker. So I agree with that as a tool. You know, it's kind of like, you know, you're, you're pulling on a thread, right? Like you, this might be the problem, but what, what's the source of that problem? And, and then you kind of pull, pull, tug on it some more <laughs> and try to uncover what, what are the root causes of those. Yeah. There's a, there's a second part to that. I think this has been on my mind recently because as my function as a program director for the Design Leaders Council, I have a group of 15 leaders from a lot of different organizations, and they have this, the question on their mind is, how do you communicate the value of design and how do you help and mentor and, and guide to younger designers to be more be able to interface and and advocate for for what they're what they're creating, and one of the barriers that was brought up in our recent meeting was many designers aren't taught the language of business, and they kind of think, okay, that's business stuff. You don't, I don't need to worry about that. But what their point was was that you can, there isn't good language really to describe the value of design. So you have to use like, be creative in how you do it, but. Uh, one of the uh, one of the VPs of design organization and CPG said, if you don't make that case, someone else is going to make it for you. <laughs> so if you want that to be somebody in marketing, then feel free and just go back to your desk and make stuff. If you want to be an advocate for d- design and make and an advocate for the users, then you do. It is your responsibility to learn some of that uh, language and have those conversations. Right. Advocating for design is, is so important. If you were going to be a designer, I just came from a start a meeting with a startup founder and they actually, although he's very much a product person and he's got a good design sense, they, he actually has not even budgeted for design. And so you have to convey the value of design. Like, why do I need to spend this? This you know, You're spending hard costs, right? Money, headcount, whatever. Like what, what is the value of design was, you know, from a business and, and he's a successful entrepreneur. So you, you have to convey to them, right. What in, in terms of they understand what, what are they going to get for this, this money, this, this investment. And uh, it's not just screens and pixels, right. Cause the engineers crank those out. What's wrong with those screens. Right. And that uh, somebody told me, somebody told me once, and maybe this is the famous quote that I'm butchering, but basically everything is design. So your choice is not design or no design, it's thought through design or good design or bad design. So mm-hmm. those those are your options. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, talk to me about how you 
were interested in design? I mean, you you went to a BFA school and then you have a master's in design, but what, what got you interested in the first place? That's a good question. It was actually a class in in middle school. No, it was like in, in sixth grade, I think. And basically we had a class where it was, they because of budgeting reasons, they had to split a class in half and share. One was desktop publishing and one was like business and marketing. And some people thought that was a really bizarre combo, but I thought, oh, wow, this is really cool. I can make things and I can like com- communicate professionally about this. So that was just in the back of my mind for a while. Then I took more art classes and then in college typography and color and all of the, the fun stuff you learn, the theory behind formal design. And that's, I think, how I got started in it. And then I was really focused in graphic design in college. But after I I had like a side business doing consulting work, and after maybe 10 or 15 clients, I realized I can continue to make money and help pay for my tuition that way. But the subjectivity of, of, of some of the visual design world was frustrating for me personally. So I moved into interaction design, and that's how I... I found Hugh Deberly in the Deberly Design Office. Now, you've had a consulting business while you're in school, uh, you know, and now you're you're in house. Can you maybe double click on kind of you know if somebody wants like what are the differences and if they want to be a freelancer, what what do they have to think about? That's a great question. Uh, maybe frame it slightly differently. I hadn't done that kind of freelance work for for quite a while, but better. Uh, a better thing to I can maybe shine some light on is I was I worked in consulting at Dublin, which is part of Deloitte, for the seven years prior to joining KP. So that kind of work was was really, really fascinating and fast paced. And it's like the problem space and even in the beginning of the industry would change every three weeks or every three months and my team would change. So everything about my work, even the physical location of where I would be was was different. And that was really exciting to me for, for quite some time. I think after a while, I, I really wanted to focus on healthcare specifically. And I was able to do that there. But at the, at the end of the day, I was maybe a year or two away from going up for a partner or managing director. And what really drew me to KP was, was the ability to see the work that I was doing thrive in the world or fail. I, I, I want to see both and then be able to have the responsibility to fix those things or improve them or celebrate those successes, which is not something that I was able to experience in a consulting role because it wasn't my company. I didn't work there. I was The projects were great. People were great, but I wanted to see the... <laughs> it come to fruition. And I think if you were doing your own uh, your own work, contract work, you that would still apply. You'd only get to see to the point where you handed it off to an engineer and then you went on to the next thing. So it's it's preference thing, what excites people. Yeah, that, that is so true. I mean, as an owner of a consulting agency, you're, I imagine, you know, we, we finish a project, we hand it over, you know, maybe it's ongoing a retainer, but uh, for a lot of projects, you're you're done and you move on to your next project. So you see a lot of breadth, but but very seldom do you kind of are aware of kind of the impact that you have 
oftentimes I we have to rely on you know many months later a lot a lot of time a lot later when oh wait the, the company got sold or you know they had a they had a higher valuation for because of partly because of the redesign or something like that so it's uh, it's really hard to feel or see the impact unless you're there for the for the length of the journey of that company yeah and i think that when you when you see something actually implemented and then all of the things that it takes operationally to get even something up and running let alone when you start to see users using it at scale <laughs> and then you, you you either are pushing them the 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 metrics or the intention that the tool you created has out there then you kind of have to uh, adjust so that was something that that I'm going through now and 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 learning because what looks good on paper may not work the, the way you expect it and you kind of have to be there to 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 guide it through or someone else will yeah and you mentioned uh, you touched on a little point because you worked at a, a big consulting firm that you know there there is opportunity for I don't know how COVID has affected this, but you know, pre-COVID, you you potentially had an uh, opportunity to travel, and uh, not only you got did you get to see a lot of breadth of experience and and clients and industry, but you also maybe if you wanted travel, this is a great way to kind of get to see the world. If you're part of a big consulting agency where wherever you're assigned, I mean, I, I had I lived a part of that. And I was able to, like you yourself, able to travel and, and experience a lot of clients and a lot of projects in different areas. Yeah, it was 95 or 99% seeing the insides of offices. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, you can take the weekend and not go home and go hang out in a space, which a lot of uh, consultants choose to do that on their own dime, which is what's cool. I wanted to be home. So I ended up <laughs> just being in airports and hotels and offices a lot. Yeah. Yeah. You do get a lot of hotel points and airline miles. Yes. I got a free trip <laughs> to Puerto Rico, all expenses paid just on points. <laughs> nice. Nice. So I, I know you got into healthcare for personal health reasons. You want to talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. I'm happy to share. So when I back when I was in the BFA program at San Jose State, I was really like excited about design, and I was doing a lot of branding and that kind of thing. And then one day I was at the dentist, and they said, "Hey, you have a lump on the roof of your mouth. You should get that checked out." And the look on the face of the dentist, I was like, "Oh no, I have, what's uh, what's going on here?" So I go get a biopsy and they for like a week i was like freaking out like oh my gosh what's going to happen is do i have cancer or something luckily it wasn't it was benign but they they asked me to have surgery they said this is going to continue to grow and it'll just grow into your brain which is not mm. not a good thing so i scheduled the surgery at stanford hospital and then about oh two days before the surgery i got a call and they said your insurance is expired um, and I had, because I had worked and then gone back to, to school. And so my, my employer insurance was gone, but I had this Cal Cobra thing, which is basically like a, a state sponsored insurance plan, but it only lasts for so long. And then I was 
I was really shocked and I, I was like, oh shoot, I need this surgery, but I don't know if I can afford it. So then I asked them, how much does it cost? They don't know. You have to go ask the doctor. I asked the doctor, they're like, well, it's complicated. <laughs> so I went physically to the hospital and then found someone in a back room, this admin opened this binder and started looking at all these numbers. And she said, I'm not supposed to do this, but I can, I can get you some rough estimates. It's going to be between 50 and $70,000. And I was like, Lord, I don't have any savings. I'm a college student. I talked to my parents about it. They're like, yo, maybe we could sell our house to, to do this, get this for you. And I've, I was just devastated. And the whole time I was thinking, why are all of these steps so disconnected and just bad? This is really, really bad design. So I have the, I talked to somebody at CalCobra. They snuck me in back onto my insurance, which they probably weren't supposed to do. But I was able to then have the surgery with very low cost. And then I started getting bills, like one bill from, from the anesthesiologist and one bill for medical supplies and one for the medical center and then one from the hospital and then one for the doctor. And I had this binder about this thick of all of this paperwork. I didn't know when it was going to stop. They were poorly designed. I didn't know what I was supposed to pay. It was just a nightmare. So that inspired me. Uh, and then on top of it, after I recovered from surgery, I couldn't, that I had um, a hole going from my sinuses to my mouth. So my voice was really, really different. And I was afraid to, to even speak. And it was hard to speak and, and to eat. And it took a while for me to learn how to, to speak correctly again. So I was just pretty quiet. And, and when I was back in the, the PFA program, I thought, why don't I try to use my visual design skills to try to, to show this problem and maybe some solutions. So I did a series of projects which visualized that, which are great to help people highlight the problem, but it doesn't fix it. And that has, has been my passion to basically help people overcome things that are barriers to them living their full life and thriving. Because people have better things to do than deal with medical bills or schedule stuff. Like we, I was a really passionate and excited design student. And that kind of like, I'm glad it happened because it gave me more passion and empathy for, for what happens. And my case was really pretty easy compared to what, how other people ha had, have their experience have turned out. But I want to fix as many of those problems so people can just go on with their lives. <laughs> Yeah, generally, healthcare and the the insurance industry is is not well known for for usability. When we were talking, you, you did say you know that designers are ideal to work in healthcare. Can you expand on that? Yeah, there are there are certain tools within design thinking and human centered design that are that are really ideal for solving complex problems where there's not a single source. If there if it's easy, if it's like, oh yeah, this thing is broken, go fix it. Send an engineer to do that. If it has to do with understanding human behavior and changing processes and visual artifacts and digital tools and then all of the different stakeholder groups and being able to help bring together people who speak very different technical languages like physicians, insurance executives and doctor or like nurses and all of these people, they don't they don't have the tools to communicate completely effectively. And yes, they can get on phone calls and Zoom calls and talk and send documents. But designers have a superpower of being able to come in with like a 
fresh beginner's mind and say, is this what you're talking about? And make diagrams or flows or tools and prototype and get people to react to the thing so that it's not two people talking over each other or competing Mm -hmm. or trying to align on this ephemeral verbal language that's floating around. It's like, oh, this is the artifact, which is sometimes called a boundary object. We can say yes or no, this will work and why or why not. So that kind of that kind of skill set and the ability to be creative and think of new things and always push for better, I think is are in the, the skill set of designers and makes them really great at um, solving complex healthcare issues. Yeah. So if you're a designer and you're sold that you want to solve this problem, how does one get into uh, break into that industry? Just start, <laughs> get a project related to it and keep, keep working um, with those, those people that you, that you're working with. There are tons of organizations that don't have a, like a, a budget or, or they don't have a, a clearly articulated need for design, but when they see it, they're excited by it. And, and you can get projects that way. You can volunteer with nonprofit, but there's a ton of, there's also a ton of startups in the health tech space. So there's many, many ways to get into it. I would just say, don't be afraid. You're, you're not going to ever know all of it. So just start, ask dumb questions. It's fine. And you can figure it out. I actually just um, hired a, a designer who's graduating from Claremont College. And she was passionate about healthcare and human-centered design. Her school didn't have an HCD program. So she just designed her own major. And then she just decided to work with a healthcare organization on an oncology project and did it. And it's amazing. And that's one of the reasons why we hired her. But it, I think you just need to to try it. Yeah. Well, it, it, she showed initiative and drive and made found found a project that was a, a relevant experience to you. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a great time, I think, to get into healthcare as well, because there's still a lot of things that are broken. But design is being elevated and people are more aware of it. And there's a lot of different startups that are creating point solutions, but no one is really connecting them together well. And the need for healthcare is going to grow significantly because of the aging baby boomers and uh, the problems are going to get like more complicated and, and it's, it's going to be a very rich space. So in the, the beginning of the pandemic, our, my, my company was worried. It's like, oh no, is this going to affect how much work is being done? And healthcare did not slow down; it just sped up. So it's one of those industries that are, I think, are really solid to get into. Yeah, and the people who are more digital native are getting more comfortable with technology. And as we age, we're we're much more comfortable with with technology. I like I like going to healthcare services that you know, for example, like. Old world is, oh, every time I have to talk to them, I have to get on the phone, right, and, and do something like that. Whereas even just email or text messaging, I go to a provider that texts me reminders to, to confirm, hey, are you coming? And I just hit yes or no. You know, I can check in before I, I get there via SMS. So like designing as someone who's much more comfortable and prefers not having to like put up, be a put on hold, like having these digital experiences that are work the way I like to work <laughs> is so much better. So I think there's a yeah. lot of opportunity. Yeah. There's also a realization that, that 
that care is not just a one-to-one. It's not just a physician to a patient. There's a whole care team on the side of the the doctor, and then there's a whole personal care team on the side of, of the patient. So, like, I don't know about you, but I don't make all of my healthcare decisions by myself. I consult others. Um, my parents had been taking care of their parents, my grandparents, for a while, and it's the system is not really designed for caregivers to easily access information and make decisions. It's kind of a weird spot. And then that's becoming even more complex now that there are digital tools to start to measure. Like, let's say you have a, a, a glucometer or an activity sensors in the house of your, of your grandparents, who owns that data? Who is, is the permission? Is it to see that? And how do you use that or like how do you use that information to share with your physician to gain insights none of those answers are those questions are are being answered in a thoughtful way right now that i've seen yeah so the opportunity is is right thank you for going over kind of the healthcare side i'd like to maybe ask about kind of the the design leaders council tell tell me about that and how you got involved what's the benefit of that i don't know anything much about that organization yeah, so it's part of the conference board, which is has been around for, I think, 100 years, maybe a little bit more. And they basically put together topic areas and councils that have similar uh, interests and, and issues. So there's there's some that are based on finance. There's some that are like on, on marketing and advertising. There's This one is around design generally. So it is a group, I think it's around 15 right now, that how they work in different industries. So we have somebody who's in a couple of people in CPG, consumer packaged goods. There's someone from a railway. There's some people in healthcare and then financial services. And they all, I mean, if you if you think about the the course of your career, when you're when you're a young designer, you may not have a strong network of of peers. Then you go to work for an organ a consulting firm or a big company and there's there could be many of you and so you can talk to each other as you move up there are fewer and fewer people who have an understanding of your particular needs especially at the executive level you may be the only one so having a, a network of peers to talk to even if they are in, in different industries can be valuable so we meet two we, we were meeting two times a year for like two days was in person before the pandemic. Um, Now we're doing uh, a virtual and then we'll go to a hybrid next year, probably. And then several like topical, like three hour sessions where we we have one of the opportunity areas we're looking at is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And how do you take action on that? Not just talk about it. Another one is how do you develop and mentor early career designers into, into leaders? And there's a bunch of other topic areas. So it's, and I got involved in it because my, someone I used to work with, who is a great, one of the leading thinkers in behavioral design, her name is Ruth Schmidt. She worked at Dublin. She was my professor at the Institute of Design. She had been the, the program director the, the last uh, 2020. And then when her contract came up, she um, asked me to to co-program direct with her. She's now focusing on her studies, and now I'm just going to be the sole program director for this next year. But 
was a nice uh, transition to learn about the, the council and the members and, and, and now I'll be doing it solo. Nice. Yeah, having an accountability uh, group that meets somewhat regularly is, is just so, so great as, uh, you know, I, I used to do that with just a peer, a group of other CEOs as, as I ran my own agency. So I found that immensely helpful to be able to, to you know, because if you're in a similar stage in, in your career, you, 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 one, you can relate to one another, two, you might have similar problems that people have already surpassed or overcome those challenges. So I think, you know, in whichever industry you're in, whether it's design, engineering, just, just having that regular peer group is just so, so useful. I know that you, you worked in various industries before healthcare, like finance and startups. Anything noteworthy you can talk about? Any accomplishments or, or work that you've been proud of or companies and products? Yeah, I won't mention them by name, but there is uh, one of my favorite projects was actually in the financial services space for a nonprofit religious insurance company, which I thought it kind of blew my mind that that was even a project type or a client type when I first got involved with it. And essentially they were, they had been, they had been serving a primarily uh, homogenous demographic group in the Midwest for like a hundred plus years and wanted to start to expand and before we got involved with the project, they had been they had been looking at the Latinx market, and they had taken a very marketing approach to to the um, to the problem, and basically saying, okay, well, let's go study some people in like from a survey level analysis in California and see what we can do, and kind of translate the materials they had into to Spanish, and that did not have. The as nearly as big of an impact that they thought it or that they would like to have. So we, uh, my team took a human-centered design approach and really did um, deep research, ethnographic research with their potential customers to understand their needs. How do they think about money? How do they talk about money? How do they make decisions? What are their hopes and dreams? And and realized that that not only was the marketing, like the language an issue, that was the least of the issues. The brand name didn't resonate. The way that they sold insurance by sending sending somebody who is a financial expert door to door and telling you what you need or, or having like classes about problems that don't resonate with you that they didn't, they, it did, it just, there was a lot of good opportunities. So we created a, a new, we worked with a branding agency to do a new name, like a sub-brand. We created a physical space that would be, that would sit in the communities where people were buying this product. And not only is it a space to go and get insurance, but it's, you can have classes there and those, or you can do host community events there. So it actually builds a relationship and trust and you know where to go. Um, and redesigned the curriculum. So asking folks what what topics interest them and then using that as a way to create customized training and then having a new digital tool. So there's a conversation between a, a new type of non-sales role and potential customer. And if you think about that interaction, it's like you're on an iPad and you have to explain to somebody what what their options are and help them like move through this digital tool. 
and then go home and talk about that with their family and still have all of that insight and, and preferences captured. So interesting digital tool. And then completely redesigned the, the way that they promote their products. So it's not it's not some, like a financial expert going in and, and talking to, to somebody, but it's somebody who actually is part of the community who this is not their full-time job and they don't, they're legally not allowed to sell. So they have no incentive to, for you to buy a product. What they, what they really want is for you to become like better at managing money. However, that means to you, whatever that means to you and having creating a safety net for your family. And at one point we realized like, okay, this is your, your brand promise. You really need to have an emergency savings account because this doesn't make sense. It's just like in case somebody dies, nobody wants anyone to ever die. This is not, it's not financial safety. So they created a product um, and shifted almost everything about the way, except for their mission and their values, every part of the the service and the experience and the product um, were different. So that launched and is, is being, it's been adapted and they've done a few, few pivots, but it w- went out into the world and it was a real thing and made a difference for, for real people. So that's what I'm really proud of. Yeah, that reminds me a lot of a couple things kind of in the financial services world. I know like in the Bay Area, there's like, uh, I think Capital One has a coffee shop, right? And it's like this space, actually a bunch of financial services firms have coffee shops that are like not, you know, they're not there to sell you anything, but just kind of having that brand awareness. And and, and yeah, they have advisors you can talk. I know SAP in Palo Alto has like a, a coffee shop there as well. And, you know, I wasn't even... Like, took me a couple of visits when I finally realized, oh, this is like some by SAP, and now and then I started looking into the product. I'm like, oh, okay, so it's very, very, very subtle marketing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then the so much of what you described is very like it has so little to do with actual digital user experience of screens and tablets and and mobile, but really kind of like the. The, the overall service design right had to be adapted to to this new demographic it seemed like yeah i mean we have to figure out all of those things before getting into the digital design but like the website and the brand and the communication materials and the training materials and the digital tool all of those needed to be created but we just needed to know what they need to do and how they worked before even or even that was the thing to make which is, I think, the big, always the big strategic design question. You can you can wait until somebody hands you like a, an order for a specific digital tool, or you can think about what digital tools should we be making and what is the value. And I think that's for me, that's the more interesting place to to play. Yeah. But that's just a preference. <laughs> and uh, the other insight I have is like it's so much of attacking or. or you know, going into a new market or a different market is not just translating the material, right? Like, as you said, if that didn't work, kind of reminds me of that story of like with in, in Southeast Asia, for example, there, there are other services similar to Uber, like Grab and, and Gojek. And actually Uber finally conceded defeat within that market and, and sold their business because they didn't adapt it to the local needs, right? They, they just translated what they had that worked in the U.S., but but so much of the cultural norms are, are very different. So you have to, you know, the, so the local services kind of thrive because they understood that. 
Yeah, and that, that gets to another, I think, key part of, of design that I think is, well, I don't know about anymore about design programs in schools, what they're teaching, but design research is a real important field. <laughs> and there are, there are methodologies and tools, like you have to know, set all your assumptions aside, go talk to people and figure out what it is they're trying to accomplish and why, and that will inform a better design. If you just, and it de-risks the process, it saves tons of money. If you find that somebody doesn't want something after you spent three months and a hundred thousand or a million dollars making something, that's a, a big missed opportunity. It's, and I don't, I don't think even surveys and market analysis that those are, can point you in a general direction, but really talking to humans about their lives is, is a thing that will help you understand how to make better uh, designs. Yeah, yeah. Observing people in their natural habitat. There's another podcast episode I interviewed uh, a designer from Grab, which is that ride hailing service in Southeast Asia. And one of the things they do is they they follow people, you know, the drivers to their homes and see how they live and what their schedule is like. And what, so what are their needs and pain points? And then another story I think of kind of in, you know, in terms of the user research, I believe the Swiffer was invented from user research being uh, and observing people who rather than taking out a, a mop when there's just a little small thing to clean, people were just taking paper towels and, and just kind of going on their hands and knees doing that or wiping that with just paper towel. And then that, that insight came like, oh, well, what if we put, you know, essentially a paper towel on a stick? That's <laughs> essentially what a Swiffer is. And that was the, the insight there. Yeah, it reminds me of the OXO Good Grip story. So the the designer of those watched his wife trying to peel potatoes with the the old school potato peelers are just like a piece of metal that is terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> um, she had arthritis, so it's really painful. So he did different prototypes of putting different um, ends on it and ended up creating a product that's not only good for people with arthritis, but um, for everyone. If you have large hands or small hands, that it works well and it's a whole ecosystem of, of products and I think change the way that you think about usability in terms of kitchen products. Yeah. Um, but there's lots of digital examples of that too. Yeah. Yeah. That's something I wish I had gone into actually is more of a design as, a, as far as industrial design and, and kind of that world is so, so arcane to me because I, I live in, you know, kind of digital spaces, but, but it'd be cool to, have studied something, you know, that's more tangible, physical, that's kind of cool. Yeah. Now that you talk about it, I wonder if, I don't know, this is just a hypothesis, but I wonder if it's like that there was more of an appetite for it in that field because the cost of production, like once you decide to manufacture a million of these products, if that it's like a no going back point or very expensive point whereas in the digital world like creating something in adobe xd or whatever is it costs almost nothing right so there's, yeah and then it looks like there's this kind of this false sense of of finish that it looks great on the screen it makes sense you ask somebody to click through and they don't have a problem doing it and then it's okay let's move it to the next stage not really understanding like what are the motivations of them using the tool or uh their behaviors or if they really want to use it or not. So less research. Yeah, you, you can move a little faster. You can do a little less research maybe and, and, and 
have something and then and then get get feedback but but you're right with with something like hardware once you once you order a million units there's there's no you know you you can't iterate on those million units you can only ship that and you know kind kind of like the old games the cd games right you know once you print that it's you can't touch it whereas it's actually one of the reasons why one of my my old designers is no longer with us but the reason he became a software designer versus an architect was the same thing right like you couldn't iterate on a building once it's poured concrete or whatever it's it's done right you can you can't move things around if that didn't work anymore so the cycles are take years of planning and getting it right and then if you once you do it you can't tweak it anymore so software is is much more forgiving that way move faster yeah. i think there's so, also there's also a temptation to put something on a page and ask somebody to respond to it and at what once you've done that you've already narrowed their frame of reference it's like if i said ah, what type of pizza do you want do you like this pepperoni or this this like anchovies and you said oh i don't like anchovies like there's already an assumption that you're getting a pizza <laughs> you may want um, you want may want a vacation to hawaii or you may want like a better way to manage your finances but i put a pizza in front of you so you're going to respond to pizza and it's that's in a way that's easier so you can like focus the conversation and move forward but you may have missed something by just having exploratory research up front like yeah. if i asked you about food and, and how you spend your friday nights i may learn something that would inspire something that's very different than pizza that's really valuable right right there's a good book that keeps come, comes up a lot in conversation is the mom test and it it basically talks about that principle if you show people a solution versus just ask them about you know problems they may have you you're absolutely biasing them towards this solution and also people tend to be polite and don't want to offend you and so i don't think you get really good feedback according to the book and i believe that's true because you you start with the problem or ask what problems people have your solution may come up may may or may not at all so i think it's it's getting better feedback that way oh as we come up on time are there any resources you recommend yes i may need to pull it from over here there's a if you're interested in healthcare and design this book is really really great that's so called discovery design design thinking for healthcare improvement and it really walks step by step through the entire not only the design process which is important but the scoping process and setting up for change management and then the scaling and spreading and preparing for that so it's it's really really good it's pretty thick i think it's a few hundred pages <laughs> but i i really like this one a lot Great, great. I think yeah, if anyone's interested in healthcare design, again, nonprofit startups and then this resource. So, thank yeah. thanks Jesse. I know we're getting up on time. So, Jesse, thank thank you again for for being on the show and sharing your knowledge on this afternoon. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you for joining us on this episode of What is UX. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. If you leave us a review, I'll make sure to shout it out on the show. If you have any questions, send them to questions at whatisux.co and our guests and I will try to answer them on the show. And you can always find us on whatisux.co. See you on the next one.